folks, this is Christopher Talon, host of Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people by creative people. This show is brought to you by Rivertown Adventures, which is a canoe and kayak livery in Lansing. If you don't know what a canoe and kayak livery is, it's a place where you can go and rent canoes and kayaks, but they'll also pick you up, take you in a, in a van or in a truck with your boat behind you, drop you off at a different spot on the, on the river, paddle from there back to the place where you parked your car it's a ton of fun they got a bunch of routes check them out it's three words river town adventures rivertownadventures.com check them out this show is also brought to you by baby farm soaps baby farm soaps is not just a cute little name that tested well with audiences the person who makes it has eight kids they make some of the best soap i've ever used i also have their candy cane lip balm it's it's amazing and it's not the kind that makes your lips look uh, look all shiny and mirror either. It's 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 one that uh, a very macho man can wear and have pleasant tasting lips, but not have pretty lips at the same time. Uh, and they've got other other products too, sunblock, all kinds of things, safe for your skin, all natural, really cool. Baby Farm soaps. Check them out on Facebook. Tell them I sent you, and uh, maybe they'll. Well, no, don't tell them I sent you. They might charge you more. But go check them out, Baby Farm Soap on Facebook. My guest today was Aaron Daney. He ran a youth soccer club in West Michigan for about a decade before he sold that club. And uh, now he's just in coaching. And we talked about running a club, all the things that go into it, uh, what makes a player creative, what creativity is in soccer. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it. So, uh, enjoy this interview with Aaron Daney, soccer coach extraordinaire. Jason, do you mind looking up who has the most career soccer goals? Not just for MLS, but observed by the entire FIFA governing body. Yeah, Joseph, or maybe I'm saying it wrong, Yosef Bikan. I bet it's Yosef. Yeah. yeah, it's Joseph. I know where Mario, he used to play for uh, Brazil. I actually saw him play in San Diego. Really? Uh-huh. What, the Brazilian national team. 80s. Great player. And yeah. I don't know who number four is either. Yeah, Ferenc Puskas? Don't know him. Actually, I, I read a little bit about Joseph Pecan. He's not, uh, did I say he was a South American dude? I don't think he is. He's from somewhere that was, he competed for like three different national teams because it was all around the time of one of the world wars. Interesting guy, but yeah. Uh, when I saw that there was one guy who was far and away in a club, 800 goals by himself, and I had never heard of his name before, I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna start there and see if Aaron had heard of that guy. But I have not. Yeah. <clears throat> Romario Pele, obviously. And I don't know the other one either. Ferrick. Puskas. Puskas. So, where to embarrass your guests? <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least I didn't start being like, so this guy's not my friend. No, that's true. That's true. You, you got that over me. Yeah, Jason had me on his podcast and introduced me. This next guy is not my friend. I um, will say that Chris comes up with the oddest questions about certain things. Do you know this? Do you know yeah. this? Yeah. And I'm not a big statistics guy. Well, I wanted to throw that out there just because you do know a lot of things about soccer that I had never even thought about. I can't remember if it was uh, somebody having like a, let's see who knows more obscure things about soccer, but you had said there's actually a rule for um, in place in a book that says if the ball should go flat, this is what you do. And what, like, how, do, how does that one work? <laughs> You're saying in, in a game, if the ball goes flat, then you have to stop the game do a drop ball or, or something? Indirect. Or or I think it's probably a drop ball in the place it is, get a new ball. And nowadays it doesn't even really apply because they have what, multiple soccer balls out there. <laughs> but yeah. the game, you, the ball you start with, the start the beginning of the game, you actually have to end with that ball as well. Yeah. You're supposed to. Yeah, I've seen you come up with a couple different rules. And what was the time our kids were playing a game? It was a kid's game. And the referee was like, oh, there's a big puddle next to the goal, so I'm going to move this goal up 10 feet. And you're like, are you going to move the other goal? And he's like, what? 
Because that one, there's a rule the field has to be symmetrical or... Well, what one side has to look exactly like the other. So they moved it up 10 feet in front of there, so that box is now smaller than the other box. So yeah. it's not equal. Same thing with the amount of time you play in the first half has to be exactly the amount of time you play in the second half. So if they caught... So if you play a 30-minute game in the first half, it has to be 30 in the second. Huh. Have you seen where they would do that before? I have when they cut the first half early for some odd thing, like an injury or something, and then the second half they play longer. You can't do that. It has to be the same amount of time. Huh. Okay, so as a guy who knows a lot of the rules, it helps when you're talking to a referee from a coach's perspective. But when you're playing and you have referees who are, you know, the amount of time that they've lived is less than the amount of time that you've spent playing and coaching soccer. How frustrating does it get when you're like, hey, you don't understand this rule, and they just look at you like, you're insane, and you know for a fact that you're right. It's awful, to say <laughs> the least. Uh, there was a game. Uh, the other team passed the ball back to their keeper. He picked it up inside the six-yard box. Well, if you pick the ball up inside the six-yard box, it's not where the goalkeeper picks it up. It actually goes to the six-yard box. If it's anywhere else in the box, outside of the six-yard box, it's just an indirect kick at that spot. But if it's inside, you can't have an indirect kick if the keeper's standing on the line. It doesn't make any sense. So it's supposed right. to go to the six-yard box. This referee put me at the 18-yard box. And I was all, how is that fair to us when he picked it up? You've now given us a disadvantage rather than an advantage. I said, how does that work? No, no, it's right. And I said, it's not right. You're wrong. And he gave us a direct. It's supposed to be indirect. So he went back. I called my signer and told him what had happened. And he goes, what? the referee called me. And he said he talked to his dad, and they're both right. And <laughs> He said he talked to his dad. And his dad was a longtime referee. And they looked at the book and everything. They misinterpreted what the six-yard box and the 18-yard box was. And they just saw it as the box. So my referee signer told him, yeah, by the way, you're wrong. He was right. Does that make you a popular coach with referees? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But the quality of the refereeing has gone down dramatically. Yeah. And everybody, everybody will tell you it's because of coaches who yell at referees. It is because people don't want to come out and get harassed by the parents. Yeah. The fundamental problem is you can go and take an eight-hour class, anybody, and become a referee. Right. No on-field experience. No real-world experience. Yeah. Literally, here you go. They throw you into a game as a linesman, and you've got a ref. Yeah. And you may not even have ever played the game. Right. I think soccer is probably the only sport, if you look at football, basketball, baseball, to where most, I wouldn't use the word most, maybe half, half of the referees have never played the game. If you have a football referee, I guarantee they probably played football. Yeah. Basketball and baseball, the same thing. Soccer doesn't have to be that way. Right. And you end up with a lot of guys who've never played the game who are now refereeing. Yeah, and just have a very casual understanding of the rules. Because I'll, I'll tell you myself, like I get mad at referees, but then there will be some things where I go, hmm, is that a direct kick or an indirect kick? Well, I'm going to leave it up to the referee on this one because I don't know. And I don't even – indirect and direct, typically I it's here nor there. It's just yeah. the fact that – if you've not played the game, you don't see the little stuff mm -hmm. where people are hammering you in your ankles, and yeah. soccer players do it because they know how to do it. And Can't if you've tell never... the difference between somebody who's raking you and somebody who just accidentally stepped on you. Correct. Yeah. So, and West, in the current area, refereeing is a struggle. Yeah. So, well, then how much of that – because I've seen you get on referees, but not to the point where I've ever seen you get red carded. I saw you get a yellow card one time, and I want you to explain that one in particular because you said that I wanted to get a yellow card. Why would you want to get a yellow card as a coach? There's pros and cons when it comes to cards. Uh, I've gotten yellow cards. I have gotten red cards. Uh, times to get yellow card, hot day, your team's dying, you have no subs. Hoot and holler. He has to take time to come over, give you a yellow card. He has to talk to you for a minute or two. He's got to write in his book. And your the team. The kids can run over and grab some water. Your team gets a rest. 
another time too is just to make sure that you put them on notice hey this isn't going right you can give me a card but i'm just letting you know this isn't right this the situation and how you're refing isn't going yeah so that's another reason yeah i think the time that in particular when i was like dang dude i've never seen you get a card before you're like oh i wanted a card because that game, I think the kids were like going out of their way. They were like elbowing each other in the chest and like starting to throw punches. And you're like, dude, you gotta, you gotta stop this from happening. He's like, hey, hey, I don't have it. Just be quiet. And you're like, no, 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 no. And you made it a point like to agitate him to the point that he says, you know what? That's a card. And you're like, now he knows where it is. Absolutely. And the other thing is, is if the game is that bad, it yeah. gives everybody a rest. Yeah. Because by the time they have to walk over there, by the time they have to talk to you, and by the time they have to write it in the book, it's maybe a minute. Sometimes it could be longer, depending on how long they want to talk. Yeah, and yeah, we've we've both seen referees that will gladly stop a game to give somebody a dissertation about something. Yes. Um, so then, especially working with younger referees, which you do because you coach. Um, let's let's get into you a little bit. You coach um, kids as young as what, like in the last two three years. Four-year-olds. Okay. So you're working with kids as young as four, and you're dealing with referees who are probably just a few years older than that sometimes. Um, <clears throat> how much is incumbent upon a coach to kind of educate a referee, you know, by letting them know, like, hey, 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 you blew that. Hey, this has to be that way. And how much is it just, like, just to kind of, like, bite your tongue and say, well, the ref's doing his job. He'll figure it out eventually. It is really difficult depending on the age of the referee. Yeah. And referees don't, and this is just strictly my opinion, referees don't like to take any opinion from the coach. There's no relationship between the two. Right. And I've talked to referee assigners and other people, and I've said, if you have a brand new referee, why don't you tell the coaches? If you tell the coaches that they're brand new, they're not as harsh on them. Yeah. Why don't you say, hey, we're just learning. These are some of the things that he's working on. And if the coach knows, the coach is less likely to hoot and holler. And the problem that you're having now, too, is there are more and more people being paid by soccer. There's yeah. more and more people starting their own clubs. In order to grow a club, you got to win games. If you have a bad referee and you're losing a game, your tendency to yell at the referee is going to go up because – in order for your club to grow and for you to make money, you got to win. Yeah. And if you have a poor referee, it's not going to help you grow your club. It's not going to help you make more money. Yeah. So the relationship between the coach and the referee isn't a very good one, I would say, on average. Yeah. There are some that I know that do a good job, but I've known them for years, and the relationship is very good. It's yeah. the new ones, and to get a good relationship with even a new referee is very difficult because if you say one or two things, hey, you're wrong, coach. I'm always right. And I think that's the other problem that we have at the local level is the referee's never wrong. Yeah. Well, you can't tell me the referee's never wrong if you've watched the English Premier League. They're right. wrong. Yeah. And now you're going to tell me you're never wrong. That's why they've got the video-assisted replay. Correct. And it didn't work one of the first games. I think it was Aston Villa. The ball went in. Yeah. The whole ball went over and his thing didn't go off. No goal. I think it was the first game coming, first or second game coming back from COVID. This just happened. And they didn't do the VAR? No, it's with uh, goal line technology. His watch goes off. Oh, so he you, should get like a little buzz no matter what happens. And the goalkeeper actually carried the ball into the goal, the whole ball, and pulled it back out. They never called it a goal. It was Aston Villa versus somebody. Wow. Anyways. So what I'm getting at is there's no relational ship because the referee's always right, the yeah. coach is always wrong. Right. And when you take that type of attitude, I don't think it works well in anybody's favor because how's the referee supposed to get better if they always think they're right? Yeah. And if they always look at the coach negatively, as coaches, especially older coaches and been doing a long time, can help referees. Yeah. And it's they don't want it. Yeah. So a disservice yeah well it seems like the referees in in soccer kind of have a different attitude than in a lot of sports you know like you'll see hockey players will walk right up to the or skate right up 
to the guys and be like, you know, this is what I think. This is how we see it. This is why we're trying to get this call. And they'll look and they'll nod. Okay, okay, give us a second. You know, a lot of the soccer referees are just get out of my face. Yep. So. And it's interesting because I am pretty sure, I'm not 100% sure, but on World Cup referees, it's actually a personality test. Really? It is. Because if you look at the World Cup, and even if you look at any professional league, there's a relationship between the referee and the players. They're always talking. Oh, yeah. So it's a personality test and how you can interact with the players. Yeah. And that's how you kind of get in. Obviously, it's about your refereeing as well, but there's a big, big part of it's your personality. Yeah. And your interaction with the players on the field. Yeah. And if you look at most referees in the West Michigan area, it's not that way. Granted, different levels, but yeah. you can tell when you have a good referee in the West Michigan area. There's not a lot of them out there. Uh, there definitely are a few, though. There was, mm-hmm. um, we went to uh, the, one of the GRFC games together, and there was uh, first time I've gone to a, I don't know, I guess a semi-pro game and seen a female referee. She was doing a great job, and there was another guy that had done some of the like the postseason games um, for the for our kids' high school team. And I remember as soon as he came on the field, you were like, oh, this, this guy's a good ref. And he was, you know, he was letting people know, like, I saw the foul. I'm letting him, I'm letting him play. I'm letting him play. And then he'd blow his whistle. Come up, somebody'd come yell something at him, and he'd, you know, kind of, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, cool. Um, and that, that seems like the mark of a, the, a great referee between, like, just somebody who's good and knows the rules and somebody who can kind of manage the game. And really, those referees have a lot of control over the what's happening in the stands too. If they're blowing call after call, people start getting hurt. People start taking cheap shots. Then it's going to start exploding on both sides of the field too: coaches, teams, fans, all of that. Correct. And you know, you got to start at a certain spot, but I, it's just, I think we could do a lot better. Yeah. I think we're struggling. It's hard to find referees. I don't think they get enough. Uh, Coaching, for lack of better words, to become better. I know that they get analyzed, evaluated. I think it's once a season. They might get a little bit more now. But uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done there, and it could be a lot better. Yeah. Well, like you were saying a a little bit ago, too, there's so many clubs now. And let's talk about the club that you recently sold. Yes. So what was your involvement like from the time that you – did, did you start that club yourself, or did you come in, kind of work up, because you were the director of coaching, executive director. Is that where you started with? Bring us in. Uh, I been, I've worked in many clubs in West Michigan as director of coaching. I've had to go to board meetings. Uh, I've done about everything you can do in soccer possible. Yeah. And uh, I came to a point to where both clubs I was working for, I left. And I wanted to start my own club, so actually I started TNT West as TNT was in Lansing. Mm-hmm. I knew the guy who ran it. Him and I started talking, and we decided to do a TNT West. And he was the backer for the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then I took over the club, and it was my club for the last, I don't know, seven, eight years. Okay. So what goes into starting a club like obviously you've got to have some money to put it all together but besides that like you just get a dot com start telling people hey we got a club come check us out or what's 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 step one it is a lot of work to run a club uh i don't think a lot of people realize the amount of work it takes to even run a small club yeah whether you're small or big it's almost more difficult to run a smaller club because more face-to-face time, more time you have to put in because you want to continue to grow the club. Yeah, uh, You have to find the coaches. You've got to do the PR stuff, and it's not just the PR stuff with the dot-com. It's PR stuff on the field. Yeah, Talking to parents, phone calls at night. I mean, I spend five, six hours on the phone per night for multiple nights. And it's also finding, and this is one of the big things, and – There'll probably be some people who disagree with this. You got to find good coaches. Yeah, coaching is the key because if you have a good coach, he does a really nice job or she. Yeah, 
and they're very good with the parents, mm -hmm. you're, you're good to go. That team will be around for a long time. Yeah. If you end up having an okay coach, they don't necessarily do well, the odds are that team or, and or players won't come back the following year. Yeah. So a lot of it's about coaching. Then you got to obviously have the players. And the other big thing is you got to get fields. Yeah. Fields are very, very important to starting a club and developing a club. For obvious reasons. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people don't look at it that way. They'll go, oh, yeah, this is a good club. And at the end, hey, we need fields. Well, fields aren't easy to come by. Yeah. Especially depending on how much you pay, your access to the fields. Uh, if it's a city, city-owned field, then you got to follow their rules. You can't always get the times you want. Yeah. Depending on the area you're in, uh, so if you got constant fields, quality coaches, curriculum, you also need a five and ten year ten year plan. Yeah. For when you start a club, you just don't walk into it. You got to have what you want to do farther down the road in yeah. order to continue to develop. Like how many teams you want to have, how many, what levels you want them to be competing at, things like that. Correct. And what's the next step to developing the players within your club as they get better and better and better and as they grow? Yeah. And then all the headaches that come with that as well. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot more than what people think. You got all the paperwork, and there's a lot more paperwork now than there's ever been. You got the concussion forms. You got to make sure all yeah. your parents, all your coaches, now there's two or three videos they have to watch online. Uh -huh. Then they also have risk management. You got to keep track of all that stuff, all the paperwork, financially. Uh, what else is it? There's three or four other things. It is a lot of work, and you can't do it by yourself. Yeah, no. And it's well, it was a pretty much a family business, right? At first, it wasn't. I actually had two or three people who were helping me. Uh, did a really good job. I had one guy. Uh, I won't say his name, and you know him as well. Uh, he did a very, very nice job for me, and yeah. he pretty much ran the paperwork side of the club. Uh -huh. But once he left, uh, my wife started to do some of the stuff, and she grew into it. But the other reason I had my wife start doing the paperwork is I've seen clubs find, struggle financially. Yeah, I've seen clubs go out of business. Because the people who run the club don't keep track of the money. Right. And I can name, and I won't, but I can name two or three clubs right. who went out of business because all of a sudden there's no money. Right. Because somebody wasn't collecting it. Or there was an incident here locally to where there was supposed to be so much money in the bank and there was no money in that bank. Yeah. Uh, so when my wife took it over, she has a vested interest in us making money. Sure. So I didn't have to worry about the financial aspect because I yeah. knew she would. Right. But a lot of clubs will have people who volunteer or even coaches who will work full time and half of their time is maybe doing collections or and they don't necessarily have a vested interest in the club. They do to a certain degree, but not like somebody who we use that money to part to live on. Yeah. So and I know one club to where a guy was lack of better words, the controller, the accountant, mm -hmm. he would send out statements. And if it kicked back, wrong email, ad email address, he didn't do anything with it. Yeah. Uh, well, I tried. Yeah. It's so bringing in my wife into it helped, but yeah. it also made the family. And we now became a complete 100% soccer family. At one time, I think we're running over six teams out of the house. Yeah. And then kids, too. Like I saw, you'd have a kid helping you coach a team or during tryouts. The kids would be telling people, yeah, you go over here. Here's your shirt. Here's this. Yeah. Yes. So it's, so, yeah. It takes a village to run the soccer team, right? It does take a village to run the soccer team. And it made it even more difficult when I started working full-time as well. So working full-time and running a soccer club is I averaged probably 80, 90 hour weeks. Yeah. Is, is some of that going to be alleviated now? Because after you said, what, seven, eight years of you solely running the club and now you've recently sold it, they're going to be taking um, you as well as uh, the coaches that you've already had on staff and keeping some of your teams in place? Or how's that? Correct. Working? They are taking the teams, the coaches. They've added a couple coaches. Uh, but it is their show now. 
Yeah. Uh, I'll coach my one team, and then I'm going to do a little coaching education for them. That's cool. In Grand Rapids. And you've got some teams that are staying intact, and they're all on board? Most of them, yes. Absolutely. Awesome. So it was a good – this year was a nightmare with tryouts because there weren't any. Yeah. And the way that that they did it, and I'm not saying it's if you're trying to grow a club, it was very difficult to do it because you had ten days that you could commit to the club that you're currently in. Yeah. So most people just committed because they didn't want to not have a team. Right. And the other thing is, a lot of people were giving credits from the previous year that would be applied to the fall. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were to leave a club, you're leaving money on the table, right. and you're going to a club that may not have a team. Yeah. So or if they do, you know nothing about it. Correct. Except that you're on it. And when you're a smaller club, that makes it even more difficult because, I mean, there's some years where we said we'd have a team, and we didn't have a team, and I had to tell players at the last minute, sorry, we don't have a team. So the bigger clubs actually had it a little bit easier because they could, yeah, we'll have teams. We'll have this, this, and this, and a smaller club, not so much. Yeah. So it's really... It was nice when I sold the club. Yeah. So how much time do you think you'll be putting into the club? Or even if you just wanted to look at it like as a percentage, like what percentage of time will you have to put into the club now versus before? Oh, dramatically decrease. I'm just coaching and doing coaching education. I have no other uh, jobs. You don't have to worry about if people are paying their dues. I you don't do have not to worry have about to... if a soccer uh, uniform doesn't fit somebody, right? You are correct. I don't have to deal with any of that, which – after dealing with it so long, it would be nice. I can go out, coach, and leave. Yeah. Which will be uh, talk to the parents for a couple minutes and have no worries. Yeah. Just just worry about the referees from now on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to talk to you, too, just a little bit about creativity because people talk about soccer players and they go, oh, this player is so creative. You know, you can break all sports down to their fundamentals. And, you know, I, I tell my kids that are a little – you know, right now, the things you need to really focus on is being able to receive the ball, being able to pass the ball where you want to pass it, and then being able to shoot the ball where you want to shoot it. Focus on those things right now, um, and then grow your game. But at what point does creativity really start to come alive in a soccer player? Like, what age group do you really notice it, and what does it look like in a young soccer player? I think creativity comes from playing with the ball as often as possible. And in the U.S., we don't touch the ball enough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you go to a soccer game, you see little kids throwing footballs, throwing a baseball. They're not kicking a ball as much. Yeah. Uh, in other countries, they play soccer all the time. Yeah. Play on the street. Granted, as time goes on, it's becoming more and more organized. But creativity can come young. I mean, seven, eight, nine, you could see kids being creative. And I'll give... Uh, it's not something a lot of people think about. When I just kick a ball with my kids, all they do is just kick it back to me. They just pass it. They don't hit it with the outside of their foot. They don't try to chip it. They don't try to flick it. It's just okay just to kick the ball back and forth. Yeah. Well, that's boring. There's no creativity in that. And they don't even think about, hey, I could hit it with the outside. Or do I hit it with the inside and hook it? They just pass it straight back. They don't flick it in the air. They don't do anything like that. And I'm all, that's boring. Yeah. But... We don't put enough kids in situations to be creative. And if you look a lot at the education system, and this is just my opinion, most education, and you're an education major, is everybody's in a box. Yeah. And you have to work within that box. Mm -hmm. I want people outside of the box. Yeah. But it's hard to find creative players when in school they're told this, this, and this. They can't think outside of it. Then you go to a soccer field and you want them to think outside of the box and they can't because all day long they've been like this. So if they touch the ball more and they start playing with the ball more, I think that starts to develop some of the creativity within players. And you can see it really, really young. Yeah. Kids juggling balls. You can see kids doing croice, just having fun. Yeah. You know, and I don't think we have enough creative players within the world. Well, look at Pulisic. Yeah. Did you see his goal the other night? No. I haven't been watching that much soccer. Well, Honestly, I don't think I've watched a full game since uh, since they started playing again. He scored the first goal against uh, uh, Man City. Individual effort, got it at the halfway line, beat two players, 
and then finish, and it was a nice finish for as far out as he was to hook it around Edison. Yeah. A lot of that was individual creativity. Right. Here's the funny thing. He grew up, I think he was born in Germany, not 100% on that. Yeah, because everybody calls him the American Messi, but he's not really an American byproduct. And then he spent a lot of time in England, and then he came to the States. Yeah. So, uh, but he is very, very creative. The other thing is he's super fast. Yeah. But That we, helps with any sport. Speed and physical ability helps, but it's not necessarily paramount. Correct. But when we get, get back to creativity, I don't think we now as coaches have to put kids in environments to be creative in order to get creativity out of them. Wait, say that again. We need to put kids in a create in an environment that can be creative yeah, yeah. in order to get any creativity out of them. Right. So how do you how do you simulate that then? Like how do you how do you push that on a kid? You can't really. It's the activities that you choose. Yeah. That maybe they can think outside of the box and do something different. Yeah. Uh, well, I've I was at a coaching course one time, and this is just an example. I was at a, I had my national youth license, and. We played a game. It was one versus one, and then there was a goal on each side about 10 yards apart. Uh-huh. And they wanted us who could grab the ball the quickest and then put it through the goals. And it was just similar. And this was – I don't I don't remember the age group this, this day was. Anyway, so I grabbed the ball, and I kicked it through. And they go, uh-uh, you got to dribble through. You never said I had to. All you said was I had to put it through the goal. So then they switched it. But the creativity is, I'm not going to, why would I go there? I'm just going to play it from here. Yeah. And it's stuff like that that we don't let the kids get away with. Right. And I, they're called schemers. I like schemers. Yeah. I want them on my team. <laughs> they're the ones that are thinking outside of the box, and they're the ones who help you win games. Yeah. Yeah, they're the, the, those kids tend to look outside of their immediate areas too and they'll see that person running down the sideline and go oh hey i'm gonna pass it to that guy instead of try to beat these three people correct so uh we need to have more creative players all right i want to ask you because i've heard you say this and i always get excited when you yell at one of the players take them on and you would say like you know specifically encourage players don't pass try to get around that person so is that kind of in line with that you know Forcing someone to not just play safe and smart, but try something. Yes, you should. Absolutely. And it's very hard to beat players one-on-one. Yeah. And if you have players who can do it, you want to keep those players. Yeah, some kids do it, and they get a taste for blood, man. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's something that a lot of Americans can't do. They'd rather just pass around them rather than take them on. Yeah. And then you look at players like Cristiano Ronaldo, Manchester United, when he played there, part of their tactic, their whole thing was get players into 1v1 situations, including Cristiano Ronaldo because he could beat them. Yeah. And now you're up players. Yep. So taking on players is super important. I don't think we have enough players that do it on a regular basis. They'd rather pass. And I guess that goes back to there's some players who don't even like the ball at their feet. Yeah. And it's having the confidence of the ball at your feet and the confidence to take on players. Even if you don't go around them, at least you have the confidence to do it. And if they practice when they're young, by the time they get older and they have three or four moves, they're they're golden. They're good. Something that I don't see many teams, like even through high school, and you could make the argument that, uh, you know, even in college, like in Division Two or Division Three, you don't see – a lot of like big team tactics being employed. Like sometimes you'll see um, at the top levels in the professional side, they'll scooch everybody onto one half of the field and then see if they can't free up somebody on one side to run up, you know, the empty side. Or um, trying to think, I, I only, like I said, I'm a casual fan. I only know a couple of tactics myself. Do you know any soccer tactics, Jason? Um. So- like a slide tackle, <laughs> isn't that one of them where you slide through their legs and? That's yeah, no, that's pretty good, buddy. That's pretty good. I will say this though, even at Division Two and Division Three, there's big game tactics. Yeah. All, all, most colleges will have big game tactics depending on who you play. 
I think it's starting to get employed. Uh, they do it all the time. But they, when 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 will you start doing that? And will you, depending on the team, what? Here, let's see if I can get this in one rational sentence. At what age would you start trying to teach people? Um, okay, you know how to take a player on. You know, like how to pass, how to do these things. Here's where I want you guys to start thinking as a team, and I want you to run out of position at the same time that you run out of position to create some chaos for, you know, either pull somebody else out of position or open up a lane for somebody to run through. Because, you know, I'll tell, um, I talked to some of the kids when they were high school age, like our kids, hey, does anybody ever run in front of the person with the ball to try to pull off their defender? And they're like, no, we stay in our position. It's like, well... There's, there's creativity in kind of creating chaos, but it seems like it's a dance that the teams that do it really well do together, and they know, oh, this guy's pulling out. I need to tuck in, or I need to move up to the middle. Um, is, is that something that's kind of instinctive, and you try to teach it that way, or do you actually teach guys like, yeah, you pull into the middle here, you dump out to the outside, whatever, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, honestly, I, could, I, I think you need to have a – we talk about creativity. I think you need to have a creative coach. If you have a coach that's not creative, you can't really just force those kids to do it if the coach is like, eh. Well, that's what I'm saying, yeah, is, is when, does, when do you get out of the individual skills and start teaching, like, whole team theory well, and methods? Well, part of it depends on the quality of the coach, and the other thing depends on the quality of the players. Right, right. Because you can work on tactical all day long, but if you can't kick a ball 30 yards <laughs> – it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So you can't ever not have technical and tactical. They, they go hand in hand. So depending on the quality of the players and depends on what you can get out of them, the quality of the coach depends on the tactics you can run. Yeah. You're limited by the quality of your players. Absolutely. So a lot of high schools play kick and run because that's what they have. And some of them do statistically pretty well with it too. You're absolutely right. And there's – but the high school game is a lot different than the club game because the high school players are the players you get. You don't, you can't go out, you can't recruit or do anything like that. Club, right, right. if you're a high level team, you can kind of pick and choose what you want and how they play. And then when you have that high level, how high caliber player, you can then start working all the tactics and how you want to play. Yeah. So it really depends on the quality of the players you have, and what the coach wants to do and what the coach can do because some coaches will struggle tactically. Some coaches struggle technically. Yeah. So the quality of the coach depends on it as well. And right. at the end of the day, we always go out to a game to win, but do you win over development or do you develop and lose? It just depends on how hardcore that parent is because man. All right. So my kids started playing for you. She's 18 now, just graduated, uh, when she was in, like, second grade, third grade, something like that. No, I think it was a little bit later than that. A little later? I think it was, like, you 10, 11, okay. and 12. Getting, getting close to the end of elementary yeah. school? Um, <clears throat> trying to think. No, I lost it. I was going on a tangent. It's okay. We'll just cut it out and make it, make it look like it never happened. But, um, oh, fuck, what was I going to say? You're going to ask a question about your daughter. Do you want to say her name? Savannah. Okay. <laughs> I did know. No, I was, I was going to ask you something about when, um, when she started playing there. I can't remember what it was now. I can remember the first time I saw Savannah play. Oh, yeah? Clara was on her team, and That's we right. were... We went to the tournament in Notre Dame, the oh, Notre Dame tournament. That was the one that was a nightmare to park at, right? Yes, and your daughter, Clara, was playing. I think I remember who the coach was, and Savannah took the ball, went down the entire field and scored a goal. Yeah. And there was actually a couple of parents next to me who were mad. Oh. And I looked at one of the parents, and I said, this is kind of a funny story. I asked him, I said, you're mad? Well, yeah, she should have passed it. I said, she just put the ball in the back of the net. You're at a tournament. Why would you want her to pass the ball if she just scored? Well, she she just never passes. She just keeps the ball. And I'm all, she just scored a goal. So you're going to tell the player to stop scoring goals? Yeah. 
And the funny thing is I took over the team that next year. That parent never came back yeah, because of what I said. Well, that's, I think, where I was going to get at was, too, was I remember when Savannah started playing on that team. And oddly enough, that the guy that you're talking about, I know you're talking about, wasn't the guy. But there were a couple of parents that, like, in third, fourth, fifth grade, whatever that was, they were like, I want my kid to get a Division One scholarship. I want my kid to be playing up front and scoring goals. I want him to be getting more playing time than everybody. And, like, they were, like, openly saying things like that to parents, to you in front of parents. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, how do, you, uh, how do you not kill people when they do that? <laughs> it is a fine balancing act, especially when you're at a smaller club. Yeah. Because you've got to try to keep the players. Right. So you got to try to keep everybody happy in order to keep the team, in order to make money. So you have to walk a fine line. But the other thing you have to have are morals and values. Sure. And I didn't compromise any. Did it? Did I lose some business off it? Absolutely. But I'm a pretty honest, upfront person. Yeah. Sometimes to my detriment. But <laughs> you still have to be able to go to bed go to bed at night and feel good about what you do, even though, for instance, I've let very, very good players leave. Yeah. It didn't help my club, but they were so good they had to go find somewhere else because we didn't have the level that they should play at. Right. And if they want to continue developing, you have to let them go. Yeah. I'm not sure there's a lot of coaches who do that. So, uh, but it's most important – the most important thing, obviously, is the club, then it's individual team, and then it's the players. But yeah. you got to be able to develop players, and if they're that good, they should go somewhere else. Yeah. And that reminds me of what I was going to say, too, now, um, was when I first got to that club, I had never seen any parents that were, like, that hell-bent on, um, you know, this is my kid's future. <laughs> At least not with sports, anyway. But um, they... They had a couple parents had this attitude of like, we want our kids to be on winning teams. We want them to win. We want them, we just want them to win. And you know, then they would start yelling, "Just kick it! Just kick it!" You know, like the other teams were doing because little kids will move the ball upfield, but then the other team steals it, kicks it as far as they can. They got one fast kid. That fast kid sneaks in, scores a goal. And you're like, well, all this passing and teamwork is nice, but can't we just beat that team? They're not even that good. Let's just so. Yeah, kind of share your message on how important development is versus just winning. Well, that's a tough question. Because, well, that was the thing that always drew me to your club, even with the experience I've had at other clubs, was that you would focus and let people know the focus is on development. We'll try to win, like you said, but yeah, we're not going to push winning just as the end-all be-all. Well, you always try to go out and win a game. It's not like you go out to lose a game. But right, how you right. win the game is another matter. Uh, there's a lot of clubs who still play kick and run. Yeah. Uh, or everybody anybody, just pass it to Bobby. Just pass it to Bobby. Yeah. Anybody can kick a ball. It's the person who can actually kick a ball to somebody on your team that is going to be the better player. And the sad thing at 9, 10, 11, 12, probably all the way up to U16, players who play kick and run with quick with quick players, well, can win all the time. Yeah. But the problem is they're not learning anything. And when you come up against a team that is just as fast as you, but technically and tactically better, you're done. Yeah. And by the time you hit that age, you can't change much. Right. So development at the younger age levels is so important because they need it later in life. And it's hard to explain that to parents who don't know anything about soccer. Oh, for sure. They just want to win. Yeah. They just want to win. And that they they don't get the concept that, hey, I I just I lost a team a couple of years ago. I had a couple of players. We didn't I think we only won one or two games. We got stuck in the wrong division. I had two or three girls who actually could take players on, do scissors, do a couple different moves, and actually beat players. And yeah. parents are all, We gotta win. My kid isn't learning anything and I'm all did you just not see her? A couple players today well yeah but and it's like it's one of the hardest things to do especially yeah. i think this was a u11 team 
we never whacked the ball. We always played out of the back, yeah. which was difficult, especially when you don't. Some of the players weren't that talented, and the parents no. And this was one of the teetering points of why I started looking to sell my club, as I actually had a parent yelled across the field at me was to it, sub a player. Was it me? It was not you. Okay. And I was all, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Because when we grew up, coaches were the end all, the be all. The coaches knew everything. You came home, you complained about your coach. Your mom or dad said, hey, suck it up and go back. Yeah. Nowadays, it's not like that at all. The coach is equivalent with anybody. Yeah. And as a parent, there's a lot of parents out there who think they know just as much as a coach, and they don't know anything. And just because you played as a parent still doesn't mean you know a lot. Yeah. And they're taking their playing high school to my 25, 30 years of coaching, and we're e equal. Right. And it's like, you kidding me? And that's the sad thing as well. And this one parent that everybody followed, never played soccer. Yeah. And they all listened to this one individual, and it was. And I was all, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. So it's, I think I ended up losing that team. And, uh, but, yeah, it's gotten to a point where there are some parents who, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this, and yelling at coaches from across the field. And I had a parent who wanted to come play for me, watch that game. And this parent played at co college, and she goes, I was so embarrassed for you. <laughs> the behavior of your parents on the sidelines was yeah. beyond belief. And so the next game we had, I after the game, I pulled everybody in, and I let them have it. And I said, if you ever do that again, your kid will be sitting on the bench. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate there's there's not a segment in tryouts where you can like evaluate the parents. It would be nice. Yeah. And you know, the sad thing is you can look at the kid and you can tell who the parent is through the kid and what the parent is saying depending on how the kid interacts with you. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So if the parents are not saying very good things about you at home, you can actually see that within the kid when they come to practice. Yeah. You, you tell them to, hey, go do this, and they just look at you like, Ugh. And it's really sad because you shouldn't do that. Even if you don't like the coach, you shouldn't you shouldn't sit there and say things about him. Yeah. At the, at the end of the year, just leave. Right. It's okay. Yeah. Well. And parents don't understand that. They want to voice all their concerns. Not everybody's going to like me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's why I think your personality works well for, uh, <laughs> for just soccer coaching in general. You're not too worried about if somebody likes you unless you actually like that person and have respect for that person back, which is kind of refreshing because there's a lot of people out there today who, you know, you'll see on – it's like the antithesis of the Threads podcast people who yeah. everything is great. Look at my social media. Life is great. Life is great. Doesn't everybody like me? Will you be my friend? You know. You and I are kind of like, I'm just like, whatever. Like, if it, you don't like it, then yeah, I'll be respectful. I'll do the right thing, but this is kind of how I go. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the other thing. If you have an issue with me, pick up the phone and call. Yes. Yeah. I've had a lot of – I've had complaints as running the club or as the director of coaching for many clubs, and parents will call and complain about a coach. And the first thing I say is, have you talked to the coach? Well, no. Well, why don't you talk to the coach first before you call me? Yeah. There, there's got to be some type of dialogue. And if you can't confront the coach on the issue, it's kind of on you. Yeah. Depending on what the issue is, I mean, there's bad issues, relative issues, and then there's some serious issues, which I can see bypassing the coach. But yeah. in general, you should always go to the coach first. Yeah, Give them the benefit of the doubt because you don't know what they were thinking. I would agree because more often than not, you can usually figure it out. I mean, I've had enough uh, kids playing soccer at different levels now. I've had a lot of different coaches, and there was only maybe one out of the dozen or more that I was like, I just can't talk to this person. I know <laughs> which one you're talking about, too. <laughs> and there was, there was somewhere I was like, you know what? I don't think this person's that great of a coach, but I like them as a person. And I'll be like, you know, hey, coach so-and-so, how are you? 
but I probably wouldn't be like, yeah, you should definitely make sure you get your kid on that team. So well, and you give, and this other thing I wanted to go back. You mentioned about the kids getting Division One scholarships and everything. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to use Savannah's example on my two oldest. So played at pretty high level. Your daughter did. My daughters did as well. My second twin, not as high as level as my first. And it's interesting because now they're in college. Mm-hmm. Savannah's not sure she wants to play. That, that coach is getting on her, though. He's calling her. He's having players call her. Yeah. But it's interesting that they grew up with soccer, did soccer all the time. And I'm going to pick on Hannah and Gabby's age group. Theirs is a very interesting age group because that was the team that won for one of the local clubs here, the Nationals. Yeah. And Hannah was in that group on and off. She wasn't. She never played on that team, but she played futsal with a lot of players and everything else. And it's an interesting group because if you did a study, how many of them, and when I mean they did soccer year-round, it was probably 10, 11 months a year. Yeah, yeah. How many of them, if you looked at them right now, and I don't know, I know a lot of them got maybe a half a dozen, maybe it's more, got college scholarships. Some smaller colleges, some to bigger colleges, but it'd be interesting to look at them now because my twins don't play. Yeah. I mean, the colleges they go to, they play intramurals. They're okay not playing. Mm-hmm. Gabby was the same place where your daughter's going. The coach wanted her to play, and she goes, no. Yeah. So it's interesting at, to look at how much soccer they did, and somewhere in there, I think they like it, but they never loved it. Yeah. Or I think it's – So all these parents are, yeah, let's do this, this, and this. Twelve years from now, you don't know if your kid even wants to play. Yeah. Well, Savannah's – her mental attitude towards it is a little bit different. I think her thing is that she loves it so much that she doesn't want it to be a chore. And Kalamazoo College is not an easy, <laughs> easy school to just get through if all you're doing is academics. And she's like, yeah, I don't know if I've got time to do, like, weight room and watching film and team meetings and all that stuff. Like, I'm going to be busy anyway. It is, it's a lot of work, but I, I'm just glad my kids still play. Yeah. She said she would still play, like, I don't know, rec in, team. Or yeah, intramurals. Yeah. But it's interesting that I don't think they miss it because my wife and I were really nervous about Hannah, the oldest, because all she knew was soccer. Yeah, she was soccer all the time. And then she went to Michigan. And she played intramurals, and she was fine with that. Yeah. And it was like, whoa. Because literally, those two, up until 16, I think, played soccer 10, 11 months a year. And to go that, and then all of a sudden be done, it's a big transition. Yeah. So it's really interesting to look at that from a parent's perspective when they're 9 and 10, I want my kids to do this, this, and this. Yeah. I had a girl who uh, worked. Some of those, uh, one of the parents? Nice guy. God bless him. Uh, but his, his kid didn't even end up playing on the high school team. Like, was like, I don't even want to do that. Yeah. And, and he was the one who was like, I want college exposure. It's like, what? Okay. I had a girl work for me at my job, and she was a goalkeeper. Played at one of the larger clubs in Detroit. Full-ride scholarship to the, one of the top 20 college – teams in the country she played MRL she played the highest level you can play and she said no I'm done soon she graduated high school yeah so her parents dumped thousands and thousands of dollars into camps into teams travel they traveled all over the U.S. the whole and soon she hit high school soon she was done with high school she was no I'm done I'm going to the school yeah and the dad lost it so as parents, we can want, 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 but yeah. depending on what happens with the kids. I mean, you ta- tear your ACL, probably not looking at a high-level team anymore. There's so many different factors, and I, my, it boggles my mind how many different things has to go the right way for you to end up with a top-level athlete. And you can look at any sport. Yeah. I mean, they can't get injured. Right. And when I say they can't get injured, it's like – I mean, you can, but – I mean, I, I knew a guy, yeah, that uh, he had a Division One scholarship for, I think it was football, uh, tore his ACL his senior year, and they withdrew it. Yeah. So, and when I say you can't get injured, you can't have, like, 
tear your ACL or break your leg or something really bad. So you got to essentially be somewhat injury free. Yeah. Got to have decent grades. Oh yeah. By the way, you have to have a good coach mm -hmm. and a team that plays at the top level. There's so many different factors that go into play for a player to be very, very successful. Yeah. It's, it's really an interesting thing. Speaking of, yeah, it helps when you have coaches with that stuff too. My, uh, my, my kid scored the most goals, and I'm not saying like <laughs> everybody should respect my child, ha ha ha. But my kid scored the most goals on the team. The coach didn't know, and put her for honorable mention for the district. And then somebody was like, you know, she led the goal team in goals. He goes, she did. She's like, yeah, remember she had that five goal game against Lowell. Like, oh yeah. And then she was, uh, you know, got some all state recognition. But to be honorable mention, like he didn't even know who was. Top performance work. So it, it helps if you've got a coach who's like going around going like, hey, did you know that I've got a kid on my team that's doing this? It, it, it also depends on what the coach in there, what they think is important, what they don't think is important. Yeah. I've never been one big in statistics. You're a very statistic-driven guy. It's nice to know, like, if you get – because there were two kids on the team that combined for, like, over half the goals. And it wasn't my kid. <laughs> well, but, your kid's a midfielder. But I would say this. Statistics at the high school is a little bit different yeah. than if you were doing club because they have all that stats and everything else. Yeah. A buddy of mine uh, coaches high school. He's actually got a program that they film it, and it will tell you how many completed passes. It's similar to what the pros do. Yeah. How many completed passes, what they do here, what they do here. It's, it's – uh, Really, really interesting. Yeah. Well, and on, on a note of, for people who are interested in statistics, um, somebody was telling me, I think it was uh, one of the parents from like Grand Haven uh, on a club team, said that they have a, an iPad app and you just touch it every time um, the possession changes and it keeps track of possession and you can keep track of all the other stats in there too, like, you know, number of passes, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. There is so multitudes of that. And now with professional level, with, at the stadiums, they have all those cameras. They can tell you how far they run. Yeah, yeah. How, f what their average distance of their run was. I mean, it is. Well, they get those things that kind of look like sports bras that they wear, and it tells you their heart rate and tells you everything. Yeah, it's completely different than when I grew up playing. Yeah, if somebody tried to tell you to wear that thing, would you have been like, "I'm not wearing this thing. It looks like a sports bra." You're right. I said, "No way in hell. <laughs> I don't run very far, anyways." <laughs> uh, well. Uh, we're getting close to wrapping this thing up, man. Is there anything that uh, you want people to know about the soccer club? Anything else? No, it was a good time running it. I'm just glad I did it. Uh, when I say I've done everything in soccer, I don't think there's anything I haven't done. I've run tournaments. I started leagues. I've done if, – if it's soccer-related, I've done it. I'm yeah. glad I ran TNT, but I think it was a good time to sell. And – Part of that is, too, is the workload became a lot, so to cut down on some of the workload. And to be honest, I sold it, and I think they're a great club, yeah. and I like their mission and vision statement, similar to mine. Develop, they want to develop players, and uh, uh, kind of along the same lines, if you can't afford to pay, we'll find a way for you still to play. Yeah. And I've always done that with, in my club. Financially, it doesn't help the club, but I've never told anybody they couldn't play because they couldn't afford it. Cause yeah. I, I don't think that's fair. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it was never your primary source of income. You were mostly doing it for the sake of soccer, right? I that, mean, it's nice to get an income from things, too, when you're putting that much time and effort into it. Yes. It, it wasn't ever done financially for that reason. I mean, I was doing soccer full-time when I started the club, but then I went and started another job so i did it because i liked it and i've sat on too many boards to where you have people making decisions that don't have any knowledge about the game yeah making decisions and i was all i don't i wanted to run my own club run it the way i wanted it without anybody telling me what to do because i knew how to run a club mm -hmm. the unfortunate thing is we just didn't grow f fast enough i mean we did have 15 teams at one time but uh 
it's hard to maintain a club and to work at it. So yeah. it was a good time. I wouldn't go back and change it. My wife might. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was good. I enjoyed it. And uh, would I ever do it again? No. No. I don't glad think I would do it again. Glad to have walked that walk, but you're done. Yes, I am. So it was a good time. I met, an, uh, met a lot of good people, coached a lot of good kids, and uh, so that's nice as well. And you met at least one cool parent? Yeah, at least one. At least one. Hey, folks. Thank you for checking out the interview. Go to ChristopherTallon.com. That's Talon with two L's. Check out what I got going on in the blog and on the podcast, and keep updated on what's going on.